Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Raziel and my guest today is Rocky Romanella. He is the author of Titan the Lugnuts. Rocky spent a significant amount of time in the UPS company. He rose to management from being a driver and it is a really interesting story. And what we'd like to do during this conversation was we were able to take everything that he's done and tie it to sports in some way through business and through leadership, which was an absolute blast. So without further ado, here is Rocky Romanella. Today, I am Michael Raziel. Well, I'm Michael Raziel, I guess, every day. And this is For the Love of Sports. And today I have Rocky Romanella on. And we are going to talk about his book. He's the author of Titan of Lugnuts. And on the show, we love to talk about the intersection of sports and business. And I think this will be a fun conversation with Rocky. So how are you doing today, man? Oh, great. Thanks for having me on. I look forward to uh, discussing uh, two of my favorite things, business and sports. Look at that, right? Everybody, you know, we all dream about it, you know, either playing in the majors or, uh, you know, eventually at some point realizing that that dream might not come true. So we want to be involved in sports in some capacity. I think a lot of people would wish and dream for that. So we're just trying to make it come true, man. We're just trying to make it come true. So Rocky, the first question I have for everybody on the For the Love of Sports podcast is, why do you love sports so much? I think it's the competitive nature, you know, I think it's that energy, the enthusiasm, and frankly, it's the hard work you put in, right? I mean, it, the great feeling you have at the end when you left everything on the field, there's nothing in the tank. And you said, I gave it my all. Maybe the results weren't what I wanted them to be, but you can never question my my desire, or my effort, or, or the hard work. And that's what I love about it. It's definitely... That, that that is a feeling and not, i don't think everybody has that feeling at all aspects you know of sports and you know there's definitely times when the game might need a little bit more when the uh the the competition is heightened as you said you know but just leaving everything out there and knowing hey I, like there is nothing more i could have done is really when it happens for the first time you know i'm probably a little older than 10 or 12 but you know really when it happens for that first time it's it's this weird feeling that again you've never felt before because it's the first time you're doing it right but just because it's just so gratifying and, and validating saying like, Hey, like if we won, we lost, whatever it was, I did literally everything I could to, uh, to help the team win. No. And that's such a great feeling, right? Cause you know, you, you have to be able to look in the mirror and believe that you did the best you could, you know, results are something completely different. You may, maybe you didn't win the game or maybe you didn't achieve what you wanted to achieve in your business career. But no one could, should, you know, you want that feeling of saying, hey, you can never deny that I gave you everything I could, not only as a person, but I think more importantly as a teammate. You could count on me as a teammate, and I think that that's what's so important. And that's, a, you know, it's funny. I went to college to be a high school history teacher and a baseball coach. And that's what, and then as I was working my way through UPS as a part-timer on loading trailers, I realized that the best leaders were those people who could connect the dots and get their people to do things they never thought they could do before or achieve goals and results. And so for me, I never gave up the teaching or coaching passion, just changed from a cl traditional classroom setting to 
you know, the, uh, the business setting. So mm -hmm. that's why I, I agree with you so much. They intersect. They're so similar in so many ways. Absolutely. And so, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know, as a baseball coach, baseball is my favorite, um, my favorite sport wearing my Mets shirt as I do in most days, just kind of remembering the glory years of 2015. Um, you know what, I guess attaching that to kind of what you then, as you said, did at, at UPS, you know, you're a UPS for over 15 years, rising through the ranks there. How were you able to draw upon what you did as a teacher and as a coach to help lead the men that you were, you were leading the men and women that you were leading there at UPS? Well, the first thing was is that you realize that, you know, there are no easy jobs at UPS or there are no easy jobs, you know, on a team, you know, think about that, you know, that, 25th player on a baseball team that, you know, or think about some of the legendary games. Think about who's the MVP in some of those legendary games, you know, Bucky Dent. You know, think mm -hmm. about some of those kinds of things. You know, you think about the Mets in 69 and Jerry Grody and J.C. Martin and, yeah, Will Cleon Jones and Tommy Agee. I'm showing my age here now. But think about those players. And so in sports, what you realize is that it's a team effort. It's, it's a collection of people, individuals all working together. And I think that's what really makes great companies and great organizations are people, you know, leaders allowing their people to be individuals, but also collectively working together. And I always say it's that, you know, in, in those big games, it's always the unsung hero that generally steps forward and you think, wow, yeah, we needed so-and-so, we needed so-and-so, but boy, wasn't it great that this player, you know, do you think about J.D. Martin on the Mets, you know, J.D. Martinez last year on the Mets, right? I mean, you know, you weren't sure what you were going to get from him, but think about his big hits. You know, Alonzo, what a great year he had. So I think, I think that that's what happens in business as well, is the collection of all these wonderful individuals working together. And so for me as a leader at UPS – you know, and I, you know, I spent 36 years there. I mean, it was a, a significant career, and, but I never went there thinking I was going to be a president of some division someday. I went there thinking I'm going to do the best job I can and we'll see what happens. 36 years at UPS? Yes, sir. Yeah. I, I apologize for undercutting that by almost three times the amount. So sorry, sorry about that. But I mean, obviously, you know, as you said, you know, being able to lead these men and women and getting them to do what was necessary. As you said, it is always those unsung heroes. You know, it is Jeff McNeil, um, you know, coming out of nowhere and, you know, being a 300 hitter. It's, it's all these, it, a team is a collection of people working towards the same goal, right? And so making sure that you can get everyone on that path, moving, you know, pushing the ball in the same direction, everything's going to be a lot easier. And you're going to have people that speak out. You're going to have people that disagree. And sometimes, you know, the talent might be really great, but their fit doesn't work. You know, chemistry, we see it all the time with the Patriots as well. And just understanding they don't care who you are or what you've done. It's what can you do for me right now? And are you going to do your job correctly? So how how did you deal with, you know, over that illustrious career over at UPS? How did you deal with, you know, all these different types of personalities and understanding that everyone has to be treated differently? But at the same time, you don't want to give anyone, um, I don't know what the word I'm looking for is, you don't want to give anyone... Uh, preferential treatment there we go but still understanding that everyone does need to be treated different or, uh, differently to make sure that the goal is still being worked towards so so can i w without you yes know, not being disrespectful here can i disagree with you for a second here sure absolutely so, 
So the key word isn't treated differently. Everyone gets treated the same in terms of dignity and respect. To treat okay, people the way of course. You want to be treated. However, this is the key. You motivate people completely differently. I like that. that. That's the key, right? So I'm going to treat you with dignity and respect. I'm going to respond with to you in a, in a professional manner. Uh, I'm going to hold you accountable. You know, everyone needs to be there on time. Everybody needs to... You know, you know, if we say we're you, you do what you say and say what you do, kind of idea. Now, however, to motivate Michael may be completely different than motivating Andrew. And I think that's the difference, right? A guy like Belichick, as much as I'm a giant fan, and you know, yeah, you know, you gotta you gotta respect Belichick, right? And you respect him because he puts his players in a position to be successful. Mm -hmm. He understands them. And I think that as a leader in a business, sometimes the mistake you make is you want more for your people than they want for themselves. So you pick that person you think can be that next level and you're almost coaching them to be that next level, but they're not, they don't really want to be that next level. I, you know, it's kind of like the, the number nine hitter or number eight hitter. That really is a number eight hitter. Mm -hmm. You put them in number four, never looks the same. And it's so uncomfortable. It's the same with, you know, leadership. It's like, okay, I've gotten to this position. I'm really comfortable in what I do. Now you're asking me to do more. If I, if I don't want to do more and I'm not motivated to do more, then I think then that becomes a problem. So a guy like Belichick, he looks at his people and puts them in a position to be successful. And I think that's what makes great coaching. And if you think about world-class teams in sports, the, everybody has a role. They understand their role and they play up to their role. They're the best that they can be in their role, but, but they're never really asked to do too much outside their role. So, and I think that, I think that that's probably one of the great attributes of a great coach, the same as a attribute of a great business leader. You get the best out of your people because they're in the best position to be successful. Absolutely. And that's always something that's confused me about the NFL in particular, right? Like that's a sport that yes, everyone needs to have a, I mean, obviously across all sports, everyone has a role, but with the NFL, obviously with how the plays work and all that, we don't need to dive into that aspect of the game today, but that has always been something that's confused me. Why is Bill, is Bill Belichick just that much better than everybody else? Or do all these coaches not understand because you'll see him. He'll take Kyle Van Noy. He'll draft him out of BYU. He'll put him in all these incredible positions. Kyle Van Noy will go to the Detroit Lions, be absolutely terrible. Come back to the Patriots, be fantastic again. He's going to the Dolphins. If I was a betting man, which sometimes I am, I'm going to assume he's not going to be as good as he was on the Patriots. So it's just very confusing to me. So as a leader, as a business leader, as a coach, how do you, that feels like it's a, a skill. That's, it feels like it's a, a talent that is developed over time and you have to practice it. It doesn't come, I mean, some people, it might come a little bit easier than others. How are you able to develop that type of skill to understand, you know, maybe someone says, I want to do this and this is what I'm best at, but you as the leader realize, you know, maybe that's not your best position. Let's try you over here, but frame it in a way that makes them feel like it was their idea. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense, but it starts uh, it starts a little bit further upstream, and I'll tell you where it starts upstream. It's probably you know if my wife was here, she'd be t telling you, or Andrew, my son was here, he'd be like, "Dad, calm down." So it starts with the biggest mistake a leader makes in business, and it, it's the same mistake that a coach makes in coaching: is they make it about themselves and not mm -hmm. about their players or their people in their organization. And I'll give you a quick example, right? So if you think about, you know, Bill Belichick has a system, but he but his system, you know, adapts to the players that he has. Mm -hmm. If you think about coaches, so 
coaches have a vision of how they're going to, you know, kind of their system. And then it doesn't matter who the players are in their minds. You know, think about when Jackson was struggling with the Knicks, you know, he's going to run his box, but he didn't have the players to run his box. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a perfect example of what are you doing here? You're smarter than this. If you don't have the players to run the system, then change the system. You have to get the best out of your players. But if I'm not going to, if I'm not going to change my system and I have the wrong players, then to answer your question, I can never get them to, to be successful because they're in the wrong system. And that's the mistake that, you know, that's the mistake that coaches make. Think about this for a second. So here I am as a UPS driver and I get promoted to a UPS supervisor. If every day as a supervisor, I came to work and looked for every opportunity to be a driver, I would never be successful. At some point they'd say, well, why do we promote you to a supervisor if you're not interested in supervising people? So I'll give you this example. Every offensive coordinator that becomes a head coach still wants to call the plays. Mm -hmm. They still want to deliver packages. Well, if you want to be an offensive coordinator, stay as the offensive coordinator. But if you want to be a head coach, then you have to manage an offensive coordinator. You have to manage, you know, you have to go ahead and manage the defensive coordinator. You have to manage the special teams. But no, these guys all want to be, you know, it's going to be like McCarthy, right? He's going to, he's going to have the Dallas Cowboys and he's going to call the plays. You know, Schumer is going to call all the plays. If you want to be an offensive coordinator, go be an offensive coordinator. Mm -hmm. If you notice, Belichick is walking the sidelines. The def He's involved in everything, the defense, the offense, but he's not running those things. These That's a mistake a leader makes in business is they get to that next level, but they don't know how to leave that level behind them and give their pe give their people the authority that goes with the responsibility. In sports, as you as you progress as a head coach, right, what you want to do is give your other coaches the authority that goes with the responsibility. And then you want to give your players the authority that goes with the responsibility to execute. And I think that's the biggest difference. And it, it drives me crazy to watch these coaches. You know, it's like, it's like a, I'm surprised that a baseball head baseball coach is, isn't on third base. <laughs> right. I mean, it used to be. I know these, these these guys want to run everything. Meanwhile, you know, think about Terry Collins. Just to drive me crazy, he's like two plays behind. He's like a spectator. It's like, wow, that was really a nice play out there. Excuse me, Terry. You're supposed we're like we're like our last guy who oh, was the pitching coach, right? That yeah. poor guy. I mean, nice guy and everything, but he should have stayed as a pitching coach. He didn't want to be the head coach, really. He wanted the title. I think that's a mistake that happens when you look at sports and and a guy like Belichick's comfortable in his own skin. He doesn't need to be the offensive coordinator. And I think, you know, the way Saban doesn't need to be the offensive coordinator, I think that's the mistake that they make. They they can't leave behind what they were good at. And with that, I mean, I personally believe uh, self-awareness is a superpower. Like If you can understand who you are and actually what you want to do and how you want to do it, you're going to be well ahead of the game. So how, as a coach, as a business leader, how do you know if you just want that title or if you actually want those responsibilities and, and a lot of times it comes, you know, with coaching, there is that, that retread, you know, Hey, Pat Shermer goes out there. He's terrible with the Browns. Then he comes out with the giants still terrible with the giants. Maybe we're not going to, you know, maybe Pat Shermer is perfect for an offensive coordinator and maybe he's comfortable with that now, but how, how as a person do you, you know, if the, the opportunities offered to you, you're most likely going to grab it. Of course, there's money involved in many of the other things, but how do you eventually grab that self-awareness and understanding of yourself to say, okay, maybe this isn't exactly what I want to do, or 
how do you make sure that, hey, moving forward, I have to understand that that isn't me anymore. This new version of myself is what I need to put forward. Well, I think it's, I think it, it, it start, it, it's kind of a combination of the three things. And, and the three things are the, the people who are in your care, who, who, who are that, that you're managing and supervising, you have to be open enough to listen to them. So they, in some ways, are a good double check of you as the leader. And so you have to be open to that. Then of course you have, to your point, your self-awareness, you got to be able to look in the mirror and say, is this really what I want to do? Or is I much more comfortable and much happier, you know, being the offensive coordinator? And that's tough because you believe, you know, as a highly motivated person or a hardworking, energetic person, you you always believe you're supposed to want that next level. Right. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then the third thing is it's, and I think this is, I think that sometimes is where the, um, where the big disconnect is. I believe that as the, the person you're working for. So for example, in this case, it's the general manager, or in this case, it's the owner of the team. You know, I think that the, the biggest reason why I think Joe judge has an opportunity to be successful is because he's not the offense. He's not calling his own place. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's, what's so important. And so I think that at some point that general manager or that when you're hiring that coach, I think you got to be right up front what your expectations are. I want to, I want a leader that manages the whole business that manages the whole team gets the most out of our players. I understand that we may not win every game. I understand we may fall short of a super bowl or a world series, whatever that is, but I want, I want the most, I want our players to feel good about themselves, achieve success. I want our fans to be comfortable that we put a good product on the field and I don't think you can do that. If you want to be the offensive coordinator, you want to call the plays, then go call the plays. And I think that, that those those three things kind of keep you in check. And the first two are tough because you got to be willing to listen to your players or listen to your you know people in your organization. If you're willing to do that, they're going to double check you. Mm -hmm. And then and then you got to look in the mirror and say, you know what? Maybe I'm not the CEO. Maybe I'm not really that next level, but I'm going to be the best that I can be at the president's level, whatever that is, or same thing. I, you know, Hey, you know what? Maybe I am, you know, a number four hitter. I'm not a number four hitter as, as though I always wanted to be, maybe I am that number seven, eight hitter. And I think you have to start to understand that your value is in you is the way you deliver and the way you, you do your job is more important than anything else. And I, I completely agree with that. And to that point, how do you, as that leader, get that number seven hitter to find that self-awareness, right? Because you need a number seven hitter in a lineup. There's, there's nine guys. They have to go one through nine, you know, we're in the NL, maybe this year is going to be different, but you know, there's that picture, but how do you as a leader get that, the motivation up as you were talking about before you're treating everybody the same with dignity and respect, but how are you getting that number seven hitter to understand that their position in that batting order is just as valuable as that number one, two, three, four hitter, maybe they don't get as many at bats and yes, they are towards the bottom of the lineup, but getting them to understand that, that a seven hitter is, is still a necessity. There's nine hitters in the lineup. We need all of them in some capacity, right? Well, I think the first way you do it is that the, the number four hitters are already getting enough attention. Quit, quit coddling them and quit making them feel like they're the most important thing in the world. I mean, mm -hmm. I got to tell you, I was the happiest guy when OBJ got traded. <laughs> I mean, because my feeling is a, a, a person in business and a player, th there's a point where you, you know, where kind of like your skills and, and, and your results are kind of matched up. And, and, and then in your, in your rookie year, you're probably like a business starting up where you're spending more money and the results aren't really there yet. And then you kind of break even, then you get to a point where you're more aggravation than you're worth. 
You're mm-hmm. starting to bring the team down. You know, think about New England Patriots. You know, Randy Moss didn't stay there forever. Nope. And why was that? Because he didn't understand how to play within the confines of a team system. And, okay, Belichick said, hey, I, thanks for everything you've done, but now you've become more aggravation than you're worth. I think that what happens is, to answer your question, that number seven hitter feels important when I'm treated like the number four hitter. When mm-hmm. people are, when you're, when you take the time to talk to me the same way you talk to the, you know, the number, you know, number four hitter, you know, as much as Cespedes was important in that run for us, you know, the fact that he got, you know, he's running around, he's playing golf, he's doing all these things. It's the, everything you do speaks. And so there's no secrets in, in a business and there's no secrets on the team. And so if there's no, if being a good teammate and working as hard as I can and being the best number setter, number seven hitter I could be, doesn't get me anything. In fact, I feel farther behind because that person over there is getting all of the attributes, getting away with murder. Then at some point, I'm not, you know what, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a happy number seven hitter. I'm happy to be in the bigs, but it's not what I thought it was going to be. You have to treat everybody the same in the sense of you're all teammates. There's no easy jobs. You're all equal. You know, when I would visit a UPS facility, you know, the drivers are so important. The management team is so important. But one of the first things I would do is go over to the shop and visit the mechanics, you know, and they'd be like, hey, you know, no one ever really comes and visits us. Hey, we're a trucking company. If the Mm -hmm. trucks don't run, we got a big problem. You're the most important person I got. You keep the vehicles moving. Well, you know, they, they used to always look at me and say, I can't believe you. It's top over here. Shake their hands, grease on my hands. I don't know. It's the best thing that ever happened to me. It, it's making everybody feel like you understand their value. And I think as the number isn't as that long reliever, you know, in that key game, I need you. Mm-hmm. And so you have to know that I value the role you play on the team. And that comes from me as the leader and me as a coach doing those kinds of things. That's it's fantastic. I mean, I completely agree, right? And it's it's understanding, as you said, that as a leader, as a coach, you know that everybody is valued in some capacity. And and as you said, everyone is all we need all 25 guys on that 25 man roster. That's how it works. We need all 52, or I think it might be 53 players on an NFL roster. Now there's every single person contributes in some capacity. Everybody can bring value, and it's your job as the coach, as the leader, as you said, to put them in the best position to play and, and show them the respect, the dignity that they deserve, but also getting them to understand, Hey, I know you're the 53rd man on the roster, but special teams is one third of the game. So you're going to be a very important piece of that. Hey, you're into the back of quarterback. You're still a very important piece of the game. No, I mean, think about the Eagles. They don't win the Super Bowl without their uh, backup quarterback. Right. Yeah. I mean, so if you think about it from that perspective and, and, you know, the Giants were with Jeff Rutledge, right? I mean, think about mm-hmm. that. I mean, so that happens, you know, the Earl Morrill in the early days. So that's such an important piece of it. But I, I, there, there is a, um, there's, there's a, a philosophy in business that I think really kind of transcends over into sports. And that's that don't allow your strength to become your weakness. And it's, it's, it's an issue in, in leadership, whether it's in sports or in business that, you know, you, you always kind of lean towards your strength. So for example, what's my strength? Oh, one of my strengths is I'm high energy. I'm enthusiastic. I'm, you know, I'm an, I'm an evolved kind of leader. What's my weakness? I'm high energy. I'm enthusiastic. Mm-hmm. I'm kind of an evolved leader, right? You know, think about Stonewall Jackson, right? Great general, one of the greatest generals killed by friendly fire. How did he get killed? Well, he goes out one night, his troops are tired and says, I'm going to go out and do the I'm going to go out myself on, on the scouting expedition. So as he's coming back, 
and he's crossing over the lines, his troops, you know, are told that there's a, there's a union group of soldiers coming close. So who shoots him? His own soldiers, because they think he's one of the union soldiers mm -hmm. coming over. So his strength of being that upfront leader, that involved leader, ended up being his weakness that he got killed by friendly fire. So if you think about it from that perspective, coaches, the same way business leaders get stuck in these ruts of their strength. You know, they, they you know, how many times have you watched the game and you're sitting there thinking, when are you going to make an adjustment here? Mm -hmm. Okay, there's, there's, there's nine guys in a box. You think you might not be able to run any longer, but no, I'm a running team. I'm going to run. I got the best running back. And so you, you make no changes or, you know, uh, baseball, you know, it's like, you know, you're sitting there thinking to yourself, okay, when are you going to make the change here? I mean, it's clear. He can't find a strike zone. Mm -hmm. Can somebody walk out to the pitcher's mound, but you get in these ruts as leaders and you do as coaches. And I think that that's probably one of the things that, you know, I think is is if you can be that coach that's ahead, thinking ahead, double checking yourself, listening to your people, you 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 can kind of prevent that your strength becoming your weakness. And I think that's such an important concept. Don't allow your strength to become your weakness. And you see it all the time in sports. You just scratch your head. What so in that locker room, what were you thinking about? Hockey's the same way. You'll you'll mm -hmm. watch. I mean, I think Quinn's doing a great job for the Rangers, but it seems like he goes so quickly to a rotation. He doesn't use the fourth line. And then the short, the third line gets short. And then he wonders why the first two lines are exhausted. Well, yeah. Right. They're on the ice too much, you know? And so I think that his, you know, your strength becomes your weakness. And I think that's where your assistant coaches and your ability to listen and be genuine in your desire to, you know, to have somebody walk in and tell you, Hey, I know this is what you're thinking, but this isn't working kind of idea. And I think that's a really interesting concept, right? Like it is very important. You know, you think of your strength as a strength, but in a lot of situations, as you just laid out many different examples, it can actually become your biggest weakness. So how, you know, you, you know, as you said, you have people to check you, you have to have that self-awareness. That's how you can make sure that doesn't happen. But how do you expand your strengths? Right. There's there's probably a couple things that you're great at, but when you do start rising those ranks and you just start becoming higher and higher on the food chain, as we were talking about before, you don't need to have the best strength as a driver when you are a supervisor. You have to have different strengths and different, you know, allow different weaknesses as well. So how do you then expand upon your strengths moving up these different roles as as a coach, um, as as a business leader to make sure that you're doing the best you can for your employees? Well, I think that's a great question. And I think it's a great question because that's what ends up filling out your skills inventory of mm -hmm. being a great coach. So I'll give you my personal example, if it's okay. I mean, my, for me, you know, you look at today, I'm a keynote speaker. I've given talks in front of some very, very large audiences. If you were to ask the guys I went to high school with, you know, who do you think is going to be a keynote speaker? I was the last guy. Mm -hmm. You know, in fifth grade, I wanted to be the baby Jesus. Put me in swaddling clothes, lay me in a manger. <laughs> I want no talking parts in a Christmas play. <laughs> well, until today, I'm a keynote speaker. How uh -huh. did that happen? Well, I realized that if I was, so I, when I laid out what I thought it was going to, you know, what it takes to be an effective leader, communication is such a big part of it. But there's one-on-one -on -one communication, and then there's group communication. I'm not, I wasn't very good at the kind of group communication. And so I knew that if I was going to be a successful leader, so I had to work on that. So I had to say, look, you know, it's easier for me to work on my strength being one-on-one, -on -one, but I got to figure out a way to be a better speaker and public speaker. And so what I did is I try to work on the thing. So I was, since I was good one-on-one, -on -one, like you and I are talking now, when I give a keynote speech, I'm actually looking at people's faces. 
Mm-hmm. And for me, it's a one-on-one conversation. So, so I connect with Michael in the audience. You're nodding your head. Meanwhile, there's 350 people in the audience. And people, some of my best com- compliments are, oh, I felt like he was talking right to me. I felt like he was making eye contact to a, such a large, well, I was, because you were saving me. You were helping me through that skill. And so I think the key is you, you really have to take an inventory. What makes a successful coach? And then w- what am I good at? Just keep getting better. And what are the things I need to work on and focus on that? I remember I went to St. John's University. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we we took, I think it was um, 12 credits in theology and philosophy. And I remember sitting there thinking, yeah, I'm going to get all A's in this because someday when I'm interviewing, someone's going to say to me, hey, tell me why we should hire you and what differentiates you. And the thing I'm going to say to them is, look, I, I, I know I got A's in management because I love those classes, but I got A's in the classes that I, w- that I had to take because in business and in life, I'm going to have to do things. I'm going to have to get good at things that I, that maybe I'm not as comfortable with, or I don't mm-hmm. enjoy as much. So if you can do good in the things that aren't really your, your core things or things you really want to do, you're really showing that you can learn. I think that's really the, as a coach and as a leader, what are the things that you need to do and what are the things you're good at? And then I got to focus on the things I need to work on. Don't do the things you always love to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, obviously, again, if you just did all the things you'd love to do, probably wouldn't be making that much money, right? So you really do need to make sure that you're doing all the things that are necessary. But I think the way to then combat that is to surround yourself with people that are great at the things that you're not good at. So as a leader, how do you go and evaluate talent when it comes to, you know, again, being coach and making sure that lineups filled out or being Bill Belichick and understanding that, you know, the, this offensive lineman is good for this particular run blocking scheme. How do you as a leader make sure that you're putting the best people around you? So that way, when you do have some of those weaknesses, it's more of a when, not an if you're going to have weaknesses. How do you make sure you can prop yourself up with those around you? Well, I, I think it's important for you to understand what are the attributes of the people that you feel like fit your fit your team, fit your mold. I think, mm-hmm. for example, for me, it's about values, ethics, uh, you know, integrity. And, and so if you have those core values and core integrity that then you, then we, we can work on the other things we need to work on. But if, if I'm a high energy person and I'm, you know, you know, I'm getting to work at six o'clock in the morning and you're getting to work at 10 o'clock in the morning, we've got a disconnect already. Mm-hmm. If I'm, if I'm a teacher trainer mentor and you're a, you know, kind of bark orders person, we've got to disconnect. So I think you don't want people like you. You want people that have those same core values and ethics. Their style absolutely mm-hmm. could be different. And that's a good thing, right? Because you want you want everyone to be, you know, kind of little robots. But but there are some core values that I think are important. And then I think then then once you have those core values, so like for example, I know Joe Judge talks a lot about, you know, the staff he hires, he wants them all to be teachers. Okay, well, then those are his core values. Mm-hmm. Now, their styles of teaching could be different, and that's fine. I could be more, you know, kind of a drawing on a blackboard, chalkboard. I could be more of the one-on-one communicator. I could be more of the person that's out there actually doing it with you. Style's different, but I think the core values. So I think it starts with you understanding what's your core values. You know, people always ask me, oh, you're at UPS 36 years. You don't see a lot of people with those kind of tenures anymore. And I tell people all the time, I didn't agree with everything that happened at UPS. I didn't disagree enough to leave mm-hmm. because I felt I fit. I felt my core values, my ethics, they respected hard work. I felt like I fit there. So I think that that's the first step is understanding what are the core values? 
what are those principles that are, you know, you know, that are important to you. And then you, then the styles, then you start to fit in styles. The mm -hmm. styles are okay if they're different, but as long as the core values are the same, you know, you're, you're not going to, you're not going to have conflict when it comes to those kinds of things. And then you look at the different skill sets that you may not have, but then other people fill in for you. It's an interesting way of looking at it. I get it does make sense, of course, because if you're going to, as you said, you know, Joe Judge, let's hope it works out. You know, hopefully Jason Garrett, you know, is better at clapping here in New York than he was in Dallas. But we'll see exactly what that's going to look like. And I do agree, you know, just that it's it's this the style of those values may be different, but as long as the values are there, as you said, you can fit, you can be happy and you can move forward and feel, feel valued, right? Like your values of, of teaching and making sure the integrity is there, but you want to make sure that you can add value to the company. The company can add value to you, the team, vice versa, um, as a player and as a coach too. And so you, you did bring up that you, you were there for 36 years, but you actually did end up leaving in some capacity. So I know you then uh, eventually started your own gig, let's call it, um, 360 Management Services. So what exactly was the reason for leaving and, and how how are we going to compare this to sports? Because I think we've been doing a pretty killer job this whole time. <laughs> well, thank you. Hopefully your audience feels that same way. So actually, I retired from UPS, natural, yeah, 55, I had 36 years and got recruited to be a CEO of a telecom company. We had a sale there. And so now I'm sitting there and, um, you know, I, be I believe in this concept of legacy. And I believe that that's sort of the, you know, kind of the hallmark of your career is what's your legacy. And so for me, mm -hmm. legacy is this concept. Do you leave things a little better than you found them? Are people better because of their time with you? Are your customers better because of their interaction with your company? Are you, you know, you think about that player like, you know, I, I know, you know, Michael Jordan and, you know, you know, that whole series going on now. And, and to me, Michael Jordan was always that player that made teammates around him better. Mm -hmm. So that would be his, that would be his legacy is that he left things a little better than he found them. People were better because of their time with him. They may not have liked them as much. They might've had, you know, I'm sure Scotty Pippen and him have had, had their moments and crowds as you go through the whole, but the point is, is so for me, as I kind of retired from UPS and then had the opportunity to be a CEO and then had to sell there, I thought about, you know, you know, continuing this concept of legacy, leaving things a little bit better. And so for me, we started this, I wrote my book, Tighten the Lug Nuts, which was sort of the kind of journey and the things I learned along the way and the wonderful people I met along the way. And then, uh, and then for me, 360 was a way to continue that legacy, the keynote speaking. I felt like that was sort of like the train, like the teacher part of me still mm -hmm. being able to do those kind of things. And we have a leadership training part of our company. And so the teaching coaching was there. And then of course the consulting is more the coaching side. You know, you get in, you look at issues and problems and you help coach them through that. And then you leave them with a product that they can be successful with. And so, so for me, the 360 management services was the opportunity for me to continue this legacy concept. And, and then the second quick part of that was uh, during my UPS tenure, I did all the, I did a lot of non-traditional things there. So we purchased mailboxes, et cetera and rebranded it to the UPS store. And I had that as a direct report. Mm -hmm. And the nice part about that is I got the opportunity to meet some wonderful entrepreneurs. And so the UPS store is hundred percent franchisee owned. And the thing I learned from them, you know, this entrepreneurial spirit is, is just so impactful and it's the backbone of our economy. And, and nobody's more all in than a, than an independent business owner. I got mm -hmm. such great respect for them because think about it. They slide everything they own across the table and they say, Hey, I'm all in. 
And at the end of the day, they hit the cash register, door opens, pay their people, pay their vendor. What's left is what they take home for their family. So I love that all in, but I knew I was not an entrepreneur. I mean, I worked for a big company and so great respect for them. And so this is sort of my opportunity to be an entrepreneur, but look, I don't fool myself to thinking I'm like that small business owner that's putting food on the table for their family. I mean, I've got this business, but you know, I was fortunate to have a great pension from UPS and some other things. So I, 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 the respect I have for an entrepreneur is amazing and what they do. And, and I feel for them what they're going through right now during this pandemic. It's just that entrepreneurial spirit. So this was my way of kind of learning from the things they taught me and starting my own business. And my legacy continues with the book and giving back through these other, through the keynote training and some of the, some of the consulting. Mm -hmm. No, no. And, and I respect the heck out of that. I completely agree with you there. There's something about those small business owners, man, that uh, they put it all out there. They put it all on the table and just see kind of, you know, put in as much work as they can to make themselves successful, as you said, for themselves and their family. And uh, let, let's talk about that book a little bit more. I think it's very interesting. So where did the, did you always want to be an author? Was that something that, you know, growing up you wanted or at some point during your career, you're like, I have a couple of these stories. I kind of want to tell them at some point. Neither. It was funny. I would be the last person to write a book. And part of the keynote helps. But, you know, I realized that, you know, I was so fortunate, you know, in my youth growing up, my dad was such a big influence in my career and in my adult life. It's absolutely my wife. And so, you know, the book was also a way for me to kind of thank them and, and, and kind of in a special way, highlight some of the wonderful things they did for me and some of the lessons they taught me. But the book was was a way for me to kind of you know, kind of put it all down on paper. And so I had so many conversations, so many lessons that I had learned and experiences along the way. So the book gave me that opportunity to do that. Interestingly enough, Michael, years ago in my career, I never liked the feeling that someone would bring me an idea. So we talked a little bit about that as a coach, you mm -hmm. have to be willing to have the players at different times where your other coaches you know, kind of walk in your office, close the door and say, Hey, I know this is what you think is what they're hearing, but they're not hearing that. And so I, I had the opportunity along the way to have those kinds of conversations. And I was very always open to hearing constructive criticism. But I also didn't like the feeling when someone would bring me an idea. So Michael would bring me this idea. We're at a meeting. I'd say, hey, that's a good idea, Michael. But what if this or what if that? And I always felt like that kind of, mm -hmm. you know, I would look at your face and think, ah, he's, think he's thinking I don't think it's a good idea or I should have done more. So some years ago, I created this character, Joe Scaffone. So I would say to you, hey, Michael, that's a good idea. But you think Joe Scaffone thinks that's a good idea? And that was my way of challenging you not to stop at the first right answer mm -hmm. and to maybe look past that first right answer, but not challenge you in a way that made you feel like I thought you didn't think through it or I wasn't happy with your idea. So Joe Scaffone became this whole character in my career that people would always say, hey, how's Joe doing? Hey, say hello to Joe for me. And so when I wrote the book, I never wanted to write a book that said I would do this or I think you should do that. I wrote the book narrated by Joe Scaffone. So it made ah. it easier to talk. So Joe mm -hmm. Scaffone became, so I had a fun way with Joe Scaffone. I tell a lot of stories. Each chapter is sort of, is part of a story, but can stand alone. And, and the book is about leadership. And so I think we're all leaders at one time or another. It's not just because you have a title of CEO. I have the greatest title I've ever had in my life right now, which is grandpa. So, so it's, I don't think it's a title that makes you a leader because individual contributors can that number seven hitter could be a great mm -hmm. leader, even though they're not batting fourth. Yeah, absolutely. I like that. That's a, that's a funny way of looking at it, you know, adding kind of having that extra imaginary friend or that person there that people can really 
again, it's, it's, you're not talking to you, their boss, because you know, there's always, you know, with leadership, some people get intimidated for whatever reason in certain situations, but understanding that having that extra person, that almost extra layer to go through is, is a great way of looking at it. And I, I know, you know, a friend of mine, David Meltzer talks about it all the time when it comes to sales. You know, if you're, if you're afraid of cold calling, don't be Rocky today, be Michael and, you know, call in your Michael when you're calling up and when you're making those sales, because there's that disconnect with yourself. Now, I know it's not the exact same analogy. It's not the exact same example, but it is having that extra person or having that other thing, that other, again, layer is the only word that's coming to mind involved is very helpful in getting people to understand, okay, maybe there's more I can do. Maybe, maybe it's not me. Maybe it's something else. And, and having, taking out the factor of ego as well, right? Oh, absolutely. And, you know, it's funny when if I'm giving a keynote and I'll say to the audience or if I'm doing a training workshop, I'll say to the audience, hey, who's the, um, you know, who's the, uh, uh, let's say the head of your board of education or who's your state representative? Most people could never answer that question. But if I say to the audience, no matter how large it is, 350, 400 people, hey, who's that teacher that made a difference in your life. Everybody stops. You mm-hmm. see their health tilt. Oh, fifth grade, Mr. So-and-so. Fourth grade, Mr. So-and-so. Well, by that extension, they're a leader. Mm-hmm. They made a difference in someone's life. Their legacy is that they left things, they left you a little better than when you started that year. And so for me, that's what leadership's all about. And I talk a lot about that in the book that, you know, don't get caught up in a title. Leaders are people who make a difference. Leaders are people who help people move, you know, get better and move forward. And so I think, you know, teacher is a great example of that. Think about in coaching, right? When they do the coaching tree, Oh, you mm-hmm. know, think, oh, about yeah. all the co- think about all the coaches that came out of Walsh, you know, when he was with the 49ers or, you know, I talk about, you know, Bill Parcells or different coaches like that. And I think that that was, you know, to me, that's really the, uh, the essence of leadership is your ability to leave things a little better than you found them. You know, I, I think I was talking to you before, you know, I got the opportunity to spend about four hours with coach John Wooden and, uh, just an amazing person. And I, he was telling me the story about how, how he was managing, you know, he was, you know, coaching and it was, uh, at that time, Lou Alcindor. Mm-hmm. And uh, he brings him in the office one day and he's talking to him and he says, look, you may be the engine that dry, that runs it, you know, keeps this car running, but without the four wheels out there, this, this car ain't going to run. So if I were you, I'd start to understand your teammates and I would start to understand what role they play because it's great to be a powerful engine. But if you don't understand that the four wheels are going to is what keeps this car on the road and keeps it running when you're never going to be successful. That car's never going to get to where you want it to get to. And that was so insightful for me because he, you know, t- as we were talking early on, there's that impactful player, mm-hmm. right? And he treated that player as great as he was like everyone else. He didn't give him any special treatment. And when he had to have that difficult conversation with them, he did. And that's what you have to do as a leader. That's what you have to do as a coach. And uh, it, it sounds like, well, first off, lucky you, not lucky, but kudos to you for getting to spend some time with John Wood. And that must have been absolutely incredible. I don't think you did tell me that uh, when we when we first spoke, because that's something I feel like I would have put down in my notes. So I apologize yeah. if I missed that. But uh, I no, I think it's I think it's so great. You know, obviously, John Wooden's a pretty, uh, pretty legendary coach. But as you said, you know, teacher, educator, mentor as well. 
Well, he started out as a teacher. It's funny. Mm -hmm. he, he built his pyramid of success. And, and actually, my interview with him is actually on my website uh, under Coach's Corner. And it's the hour interview I had with him. So uh, 2000. So uh, uh, but but <laughs> what, a, what a great guy. Just amazing, amazing person. And he built his pyramid of success. Mm -hmm. And he built it because he was a teacher at the time when he was building it. And he wanted, you know, he would say to the parents on uh, uh, parent teacher night that, you know, your, your child's doing really well. And the parent would say, but, well, they're a C, but they're a C student. And he would say, well, yeah, but they're fulfilling. They're doing the best they can. And they're the best C student they can be C student. They can be, that's what's important. And the mom would say, or dad would say, yeah, but that's okay for everybody else's kid, but my kid needs to have an A. Mm -hmm. And so what he started to do was on, he built this pyramid of success with these building blocks so that when he would have those conversations with parents, he would say, but look, there's these other skills that they're very good at. And maybe there's some skills they need to work on. So I think that that, you know, so led, uh, such a legendary successful coach really started out as a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you I mean, a quick, quick yeah. funny story. So we're sitting there talking one day so I'm getting ready for the interview and he's, you know, he says to me, uh, have you ever done one of these interviews before? And I was doing it on behalf of UPS at the time. And he said, I said, no coach. He goes, well, I just, I just, uh, I just did an interview with Jim Lampley. Do you want to take a look at it? And I go, oh, that's great coach. Jim Lampley, now Rocky Romanella. I, I, that's really, really making me feel good here. So he goes, no, no, he goes, fine. Forget the interview. Just ask me any question. I said, hey, coach, jokingly, I said, Hey coach, what's your favorite sport? And he looked at me and he said, baseball. I said, your kid he goes, oh, I love baseball. I just wasn't that good at it. I love playing baseball. And then I, he looked at me and said, so you're, you're from New York. You a Met fan? I said, yeah, I'm a Met fan. He goes, all right. So life on the line, one pitcher, one game, who would you pitch? And you can't use Tom Seaver. I said, well, wow. well, come on, come on. That's what I said. I go, that's fair. But I said, I wouldn't have used Tom Seaver as much as I love Tom Seaver. I'm used Tom Seaver fan. I go, Bob Gibson. And he said to me, that's who I would have pitched. And so from that moment forward, we had such a great relationship, great conversation. And, you know, even years later, I would call him like I had, a, you know, I was working in Southern California at the time. And, uh, and I talk about a thoughtful guy. So at the end of the conversation, I said to him, Hey coach, you know, I, we didn't talk about it, but whatever you want for your fee. Cause he was also recording something for a UPS mm -hmm. conference. And, and I said to him, whatever you want for a fee, just let us know. And he said, I don't want a fee. Rocky, you call him and ask me for some help. I don't mind helping you at all. I said, oh, coach, I really appreciate it. But look, we understand. He goes, I'll tell you what, would you, would you guys be willing to donate to the Jimmy Valvado fund? I said, absolutely. So we, we donated to the Jimmy V foundation on behalf of coach Wooden. That's why today every book sold to tighten the lug nuts. We donated a dollar to the Jimmy V foundation because I was so touched and so moved by coach Wooden's, you know, think about that. Here's this legendary coach. He could have gotten, thousands of dollars to do he's like nah you asked me to do you a favor and i don't mind helping you at all and just a gentleman just a, a just a, a just a wonderful person but so from that touched me so much that we donate a dollar to the v foundation now for every book sold just kind of to keep that memory of coach mm -hmm. Wooden, but also that hey it's good to give back Absolutely. It's always good to give back. And if that's not a not a good reason to buy the book on top of the rest of this conversation that we had, I don't know what is. But Rocky, this was absolutely fantastic. Rocky Romanella, author of Tighten the Lug Nuts. Everything will be in the show notes so we can grab the book there. Check out your social medias. Check out the interview with John Wood. Everything will be there. So thank you so much for your time today, Rocky.
Oh, Michael, it's my pleasure. You do a great job. Thank you for being Thank such you. a prepared and a professional host. It was uh, my pleasure to be on your show. And if you need anything or your audience needs anything, uh, you can get me through the website, email me at rockyromanella.gmail.com. But if, if you need anything, count me in. I appreciate that. Thank you. All right. Be safe, my friend. Talk to you soon. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode with Rocky. As I said, it was a lot of fun getting to see the things that he's done, the leadership that he's been able to cultivate and learn about and write about and connect all of those back to sports. So I had an absolute blast with that conversation. So thanks so much to Rocky. Please make sure to follow him on all of his socials. Everything is in the show notes. Please make sure to follow me on some of my socials. Those are probably in the show notes. Please also make sure to give the show a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes. Follow us wherever that's you're listening, I guess. I mean, you're, you're listening now, so clearly you figured it out. So please, the more the merrier. We're always for it. So thank you all so much for your time. It's the only thing we don't get more of, and I appreciate you giving me some of yours. So I hope you make it a wonderful day. Yes.